Ha ha. <laughs> Thank you. This morning, uh, our brother Will Stevenson in Sunday school uh, talked to us for an hour about expositional preaching and what that is and what that means. What it means for us here this morning is that last week, Sean preached in Mark chapter 13, and the week before in Mark chapter 12, and so on and so forth, all the way back to the beginning of Mark where we began several months ago. And this morning we continue on in in the Gospel of Mark into Mark chapter 14. And we do things this way because we want the Lord to speak to us, not me, not Sean, not whoever stands behind this pulpit. We desire for the Lord to speak to us this morning. Please join me now as we read Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Excuse me, if I said 12, I meant 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's holy and inspired, and inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. In late 1922, an archaeologist named Howard Carter, who was performing an excavation in a particular location in, in Egypt, discovered a stone step in the sand. It was actually a servant of his who discovered a, a piece of stone step in the sand with a, with a stick, And as they began digging, it led to a series of steps. And as they kept digging, it led to a door buried within the sand. And on November 26, 1922, that archaeologist, Howard Carter, records this in his personal diary. He says, With the light 
of an electric torch as well as an additional candle we looked in. Our sensations and our astonishment are difficult to describe as the better light revealed to us the marvelous collection of treasures. Two strange ebony black effigies of a king, gold sandaled bearing staff and mace, loomed out from the cloak of darkness. Gilded couches in strange forms, lion-headed, hather-headed, and beast infernal, exquisitely painted, inlaid, in ornamental caskets, strange black shrines with a gilded monster snake appearing from within, a confusion of overturned parts of chariots glinting with gold, the property room of an opera of a vanished civilization. And Carter goes on and on about all that he could see in this room that he had discovered. On that day in 1922, and over the course of the next several weeks afterward, Howard Carter made one of the most amazing discoveries of the 20th century. He discovered the stored treasure and the mummified remains of one King Tut. And as they extracted this treasure from the tomb, they realized quickly that a dollar value could never and still can not be placed on what they discovered that day. These things have since been preserved and displayed in museums and in locations all over the world. In ancient Egyptian tradition, kings were buried with all of their wealth, most if not all, in order that they might have access to it in the afterlife, when they believed that their souls would be reunited with their preserved bodies. They placed extreme value in their wealth, specifically in knowing that they would one day be reunited with it once again. The irony here being that it was discovered with their dead bodies 3,000 years later. There's an underlying principle that's easy to see here. And that's this. What we value, what we value is very clearly seen in what we do with our wealth. What we value is very clearly seen in what we do with our wealth. Another way to say that is, What we treasure is demonstrated by what we do with our treasures. This was true for the ancient Egyptians. They kept their treasures with them after death. And this principle has been true for every person who has ever lived. It's true for us today. It's true for you. It's true for me. What we treasure is demonstrated by what we do with our treasures. I want to tell you guys up front that This principle is at the heart of today's text. The chief priests and scribes, Judas Iscariot, the woman who anoints Jesus, and the some who scold her, they all display what they value in these 11 verses. And this won't always manifest itself explicitly in material goods or in wealth, but the principle still applies. What we value is most clearly seen and where we place our stock. And we'll see that in every person, every group of people in this text today. So we've now arrived, as as Sean alluded to last week, we've now arrived at the section in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus' life is coming to an end. In the heart of this particular passage, as, as the chief priests and scribes are plotting Jesus' death, I believe that the heart of this passage is in verses 3 through 9. And that's where I think We want to spend the majority of our focus today. We can perceive the events that occur 
at this house in Bethany as Jesus is anointed, as he says, in preparation for his burial. We can observe these events against the backdrop of what's happening before and what's happening after as the chief priests and scribes plot his death and as Judas Iscariot prepares to betray him. So we'll look at what happens to Christ today against that backdrop. So let's start this morning, church, by looking at verses 1 and 2 and then verses 10 and 11. Verses 1 and 2. I'll read that once more. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The chief priests and the scribes are secretly plotting to kill Jesus, secretly, quietly, to arrest and kill him. And they're doing this secretly and quietly because they're afraid of the people. We've seen the Pharisees' fear of man all throughout the book of Mark. In fact, if you'll recall, just two weeks ago, we saw just how much the chief priests and scribes, and I'll quote, like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. That's from chapter 12. And Sean preached what, what I thought was just in expert fashion. Just how much these people like to be noticed, how much they like to be seen, how much they like to be praised, how much they like to be adored by the people. And here as they're seeking Jesus' death, they said to themselves, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And they say that because they fear and their joy and their treasure is found in the approval of people and the desire for power. And immediately after the events that occur in these verses, 3 through 9, Judas Iscariot went to the Pharisees, went to the chief priests, and set the crucifixion and the death of Jesus into motion. So he offered up Jesus to the Pharisees in exchange for money. We see that in verse 10. I'm not going to reread that. In verse 11, they gladly agreed, and Judas began looking for a good time to betray his friend, Jesus. The Apostle John records the same story in John chapter 12. He claims that Judas was at least part of these some who scolded this woman. Mark here says that that some scolded the woman for what she did. And and John says that Judas was at least a part of these some. So quickly, I want to make a quick note, all right? One of the great things about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark is very concise. That's a great thing. What What that leaves us with at times is maybe wondering certain things, having certain questions about certain details in the story. And we don't necessarily always have to look to other Gospels to get those details, but today I believe that it's helpful. So you may hear me say, the Apostle John says, so I'm referring to the Gospel of John, chapters 11 and 12, and I may point there a few times. John says that, quote, Judas scolded the woman, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now that gives us a little clarity, perhaps, about what it was that motivated Judas, where Judas placed his value. It's no surprise then that Judas was glad to give Jesus over for a sum of money because that's what he treasured. John also tells us that that sum 
most of you have probably heard this, that sum was 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. That's coincidentally the same amount that a man would owe to a slave owner were he legally responsible for the death of one of that owner's slaves under Old Testament law. Judas was glad to give Jesus over to the Pharisees in exchange for the value of a slave, finding more value in silver than in the life of Jesus, one who had loved him. Meanwhile, Jesus, who is sovereign over these events, sovereign even over his own death, if you recall back many times over the last many weeks and many months, we've seen that over and over and over, that Jesus knows what's coming and that he is sovereign over it. We could look at many scriptures to prove that out, but for the sake of time, we won't. While these things are happening, while these things are being planned and carried out, his own death, Jesus is relaxing, relaxing in the house of a friend. The scripture tells us that he is reclining at table during dinner, after dinner, He's relaxed. And a woman enters the house, enters the room where Jesus is reclining. She has brought with her a very expensive flask, a very expensive perfume. What the scripture says is ointment. And this ointment was typically used in the burial process to keep a body smelling good. After death, before burial, perhaps many weeks after the body was buried, this ointment was typically used to keep a body preserved to keep it fresh. She brings us into the room where Jesus is reclining. And this is where we have to use our imaginations a little bit because there are certain things we can pass right over in this text. So let's take a, a moment just to try to picture instead of what's happening, to picture what's not happening. So when I, when I look at this verse, I think about my two daughters. I think about Isley and, and Maddox. And I think about during hot summer days how much they love to to go outside and blow bubbles. Any of you who have children have at some point in their lives loved to blow bubbles. And so Isley and Maddox will go out into the driveway and get their big gallon jug of bubbles out and dip their wands in it and blow. Most of the time they're actually sharing a wand and fighting over it. Um, just having a good old time, right? And uh, <laughs> blowing bubbles. And then, and then what almost always happens is for whatever reason, Maddox will take the entire thing of bubbles and just turn it over and dump it all out into the driveway. <laughs> when you ask her why she does that, uh, she has no idea. <laughs> she just did it because it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> this is not that. What we see in the scripture here is not that. This is not what's happening. This woman has a plan. She brings this flask of very expensive perfume into the room. She immediately breaks it open. Imagine a, a flask of, of perfume with the top cracked off it like, like a bottle just being broken over its top. The top is broken. There's no, there's no twist top. There's no Tupperware seal. Okay, This thing is broken open. And once it's broken open, its intention, her intention for it is for all of it to be used, for every bit of it to be poured out. And she empties the entire container, as the scripture tells us, over Jesus' head. And there are so many questions that we can ask here, so many things that we can wonder to ourselves. Why did this woman own this entire jar of very expensive perfume? We see in the scripture it was worth 300 days wages. That's what the phrase denarii means. 300 uh, days wages for perhaps a day laborer. 
Why did she own this? Was it perhaps an inheritance? Was it a dowry? Why did she pour it all over Jesus' head and not some less intrusive part of him? Does she actually understand what she's doing? Does she know what she's doing, preparing him for his burial? Wouldn't this be a terrible mess to clean up? These are the things I think about when I look at this text. And perhaps you have other questions about this particular event. And it's not that we can't be curious and not that we can't wonder about these things. But I think there's one central question that we want to look at particularly. One central thing that we want to drive at as we ask ourselves what's happening here. And that's this. Why? Why does she do this thing for Jesus? Why does this woman pour out this treasure for Jesus? I think it serves us well to place our focus here this morning. So, for what reason does she pour out this jar of expensive perfume, this treasure for Jesus? Now, I mentioned that we can look to the Gospel of John to maybe get a little more insight into what's happening. I don't want to lean too heavily on that this morning. But I do want us to consider, just for a moment, what we know from that Gospel. And what we know from that Gospel is that before this happens, a man has died. And Jesus has come, and He has brought that man back to life. And we know that this woman is the sister of that man. And we know that she has worshipped and that she has seen what Jesus has done. We know that she knows what Jesus has done. We know that she knows what he is capable of and she has seen it and felt it. So when we ask ourselves, why does this woman do this thing for Jesus? Why does she do this thing for Jesus? The answer is simply because she desires to worship him. Because she wants to worship Jesus. The woman's outpouring of this expensive material is meant to demonstrate just how much she values Jesus, just how much she finds her treasure in Him, how much she finds her treasure in Christ. She intends to show Jesus what He is worth to her. That's the real meaning of worship. The real meaning of worship is where we find our personal worth. Since Jesus is reclining at table with others, we know that others observe this thing taking place. And what's true today was true then. Just as this underlying principle that what we, what we treasure is seen in what we do with our treasure. Other things are true today that were true then. And one of them is this, that everyone has an opinion. <laughs> everyone has an opinion. Oftentimes about everything, Right? In verses 4 and 5, we see this. There, are some, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. I guess it's never mind that this perfume, this ointment, didn't belong to anyone except the woman who poured it out. Right? Some of those who observed this act of worship not just, not just talked about it over in the corner, but they actually scolded the woman. They actually went to her and said to her, how, how dare you? How dare you? Imagine 
just for a moment, imagine being in a department store and imagine observing a person going, this is, this is a very ritzy department store, okay? Bear with me. And, and a woman uh, or a man or whoever goes up to a counter and sees a very expensive piece of jewelry, a pair of earrings, and he wants them, she wants them. And so they purchase these earrings, they're $100,000, and they just cough over $100,000 for this pair of earrings. And you, you observe this, you see this, and you might think to yourself, goodness, what a waste. What a waste. Now, imagine thinking that, and then imagine walking up to that person and, and, and shaking your finger in their face and saying, what a waste. How dare you spend your money like this? What a, what a way to waste your money. Maybe a couple of you would delight in that sort of thing. I think the, most of us would shrink back at the thought of that sort of confrontation. We know from other accounts that Judas, as we saw earlier, is at least among those who scolded the woman. And we know why Judas did it. We know what his motivation was. But Mark tells us that there were some who became furious at the woman, that there were some who scolded her. And Mark is trying to maybe hide the identity here. But he tells us that some scolded the woman. And we have to believe, church, that some of these are Jesus' disciples. Some are his followers. Among these some are those who know him the best. We don't oftentimes find Judas alone with Jesus. Just a basic observation from the Gospels. We don't oftentimes see Judas by himself with Jesus without the other disciples present. And so it doesn't take much for us to imagine here that Judas isn't the only disciple who's taking part in this self-righteous exercise. Now, why do I say self-righteous? Look to the text. What is it that's being said here? Aren't these people proposing that this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't, Isn't that what they're saying? They say it could have been used to help perhaps feed the poor, perhaps clothe the poor, to give to them. If anything, that that might sound like the hearts of selfless men who just want to help people in need. We may look at the text and we may see that. We may be curious about sort of this this tension that's, that's present here. And I think to understand this better, we just simply need to look at the context. We need to dig a little deeper here to know how special this situation is, how special this time is, this moment. The Son of the Most High God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, He sits and reclines at dinner with these people. And just picture again, the the woman comes and worships her Lord in a most sacrificial way, a most humbling way. For those who are objecting, for those who outright object to this thing that this woman has done, do they not know who Jesus is? Don't they know who He is? I think back to the passage in in Mark chapter 4, and you, you all perhaps remember the somewhat bizarre, dramatic narrative sermon that that Sean preached that was probably way outside your expectation for what a sermon can be. As as Sean showed us what happened when Jesus calmed the storm and helped us get into the minds of those who observed 
what Jesus was actually doing. And these were his disciples. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms a storm. And immediately before this, in days and weeks and months before this, his disciples have seen him heal people. They've seen him work all kinds of miracles. They've seen great crowds gather and follow him. And then they see him calm a storm. And what do they ask themselves? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And as Sean so poignantly put it, who is this man? Who is this? After all else that the disciples have witnessed, think about all that they've witnessed since then, all, all more prophecies, more miracles, more healings, more and more and more demonstration of Jesus' wisdom and his power and his might. Think of all these things as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. Do they still not know who Jesus is? Do they still not know? We look at verses 6 and 7 and 8. I'll read. But Jesus said to them, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, or rather to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus says that what the woman has done is a beautiful thing. He says it with her present. What she has done is a beautiful thing. Do you guys understand why? As we dig through the layers here, do you understand why what she's done is beautiful? I said to you at the beginning of this that the heart of this text and what's at the heart of this passage is that we demonstrate what we treasure by what we do with our treasure. And this woman has done a beautiful thing for Jesus because she has poured out her treasure upon the thing that she treasures. Let me say that again. She has demonstrated what she treasures by pouring out what she treasures upon what she treasures. It's a mouthful. She's poured out every drop of her valuable perfume upon the only thing that she knows from what she has seen and from what Christ has done for her. The only thing that ultimately has any value. The only thing that has any value. And she's done this because she knows who Jesus is. She knows who He is. At her core, she knows this, that Jesus is God. She knows that He is worth more than the most valuable treasure that could ever be discovered in any ancient Egyptian tomb. She knows that He is more valuable than any jar of expensive perfume. And look at this from the text. Look at verse 7. Jesus really and truly, He loves that she knows who he is. Look at this. He loves this. And he demonstrates that by rebuking those who would scold her, rebuking those who would shake a finger in her face. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, anointed my body beforehand for burial. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you knew disciples, followers, if you who are sitting here watching this happen, if you knew who I truly was, then you would understand that I'm about to die. If you knew 
who I truly was, then you would know that you can help the poor anytime you want. If you knew who I truly was, and this woman knows who I am, she knows that I'm going to die. She makes preparations for my death. You can imagine Jesus looking to his followers, looking to those who would question him and saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm about to die? Don't you know that I have to die? Don't you get it? If you've not been present over the last several weeks, perhaps as Sean went through chapters 8 and 9 and 10 of of the Gospel of Mark, then you may not be aware that Jesus, this is not the first time that he's told his disciples he's going to die. This is not the first time he's declared to those who were surrounding him that he's going to die. In fact, uh, he said it three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. I think it's worth taking a little bit of time just to do a quick review there. So in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, in chapter 8 starting in verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples in great detail that he's going to die at the hands of the Pharisees. And the scriptures say he spoke plainly. And if you all remember, this is when Peter rebukes Jesus and says, you can't do this thing, what are you talking about? And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And all the disciples, the scriptures say, all the disciples are just watching this happen. In chapter 9, starting again in verse 31, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, starting in verse 31, Jesus says the same thing again. The disciples proceed to then argue among themselves about who's going to be the greatest, who is the greatest among them. And they don't understand Jesus' words that if you're going to be the greatest, then you've got to be the least. If you're going to be first, then you've got to be last. And Jesus again is telling them plainly, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Chapter 10, again starting in verse 31. Jesus tells them again very plainly what's going to happen to him. He says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. And then in three days, I'm going to rise again. And this time, instead of understanding, you think three times they understand, they begin asking Jesus if they can sit beside him in heaven. And they still don't understand that that what it means to sit beside Jesus in heaven, to sit to his left, to sit to his right, is to suffer with him, is to join in his sufferings. They don't get that he's going to suffer. Three times, chapters 8, 9, and 10, each time starting in verses 31, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And his disciples misunderstand him and effectively ignore him. And the core reason for this, church, is that they still don't, understand, they don't know, they don't get who Jesus really is. And from this constant self-seeking to hiding behind this guise, this this ruse of, of wanting to give to the poor, Jesus' disciples are constantly found placing their value in their own selves and in their own understanding. Now let's pause for a moment. This does not mean, please don't take away from this that Anyone is saying that it is wrong or bad to give to the poor. Let's just take a moment to to make sure we understand that. Jesus says himself that those who question the woman, they can do good for the poor anytime they like. Serving and helping those in need, church, is a good thing. This is, in fact, oftentimes this is integral to who we are as Christians, to seeing our brother or our sister in need 
and lending a hand to help, to lift up, to provide. The irony here is that Jesus is saying that some things are temporary and some things are eternal. And what he's saying is that the poor will always be with you. You will always have them. But that he is the temporary and yet somehow the eternal thing. He is the thing that is going to pass away, but he is the thing, the thing, that is worth worshiping. So even when Jesus is communicating, back back to talking about him prophesying his death and telling them over and over what's going to happen to him, even as he communicates this clearly to his disciples, the scripture says he does it clearly, plainly. They just don't get what he says. They don't get it. And it's not that they don't love Jesus. It's not that they don't love him. It's just that they can't take the focus off themselves. They can't stop looking at themselves. And a way we can look at this is they're placing their value, their their treasure, they're placing everything, their stock in what they know and what they understand and, and in themselves. Even their plea to help the poor we see in the scripture. It serves to take the attention off of the worship of Jesus and effectively to place it on themselves. Do you know? Do you know who Jesus really is? Do you know? Do you understand who Jesus really is? Do you understand that Jesus is the only true thing that deserves any glory, any honor, any praise? Do you know who he truly is? I want to press into this for a bit because what I'm really asking you, church, is to consider what you treasure, is to consider what it is in this life that you value. I think we, we have a tendency to put up fences around ourselves when we try to consider our values and what we value. To, to guard ourselves from critique of what we treasure. It's commonly understood in, in psychology and psychological circles that if you want to affect a person's behavior then the thing that you have to change, the thing, that you have to, the thing you have to get at, the root, is the value. In order to change the way a person acts, change the way a person talks and what they believe, then you have to change what they value. And that's the reason. When you see politicians and others with, with social influence, when they're trying to change people's behavior, when they're trying to get people to do the things that perhaps they want them to do, they know that in order to do that, in order to get at people's behaviors, they have to get at what people value. They have to get down to the bottom, to the root, and affect what people value. And I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm not lobbying for social change. That's, that's not what we're doing. But I do want to talk to you about what you value. I want you to consider it for the next few minutes and relax and reckon with yourself as we talk about what we treasure and what we value. And when I ask you what you treasure, when I ask you what you value, I'm not asking you what you think you treasure. 
I'm not asking you what you think you value. I want you to to consider how easily your heart and your mind can deceive you as you think through this. I'm not asking you to, to consider what you think you might value, but I'm asking you to look at how you spend your treasure. Okay? The woman from today's text, she took something of great value to her, obviously of great monetary value. By all human logic, she wasted it. By all logic, she wasted it upon the head of Jesus. She valued Jesus more than she valued her treasure. Much more, in fact. Much more, in fact. So much so that she was willing to use that treasure, to use that thing, wholly and completely for the sake of the worship of her Lord. And she paid no mind to the pragmatic, logical reasoning of those who would shame her, those who would scold her. She proved out what she treasured and valued through costly action. And I think the most important thing that we might see in the text today is that she did this and that Jesus was pleased with it. She did this thing for him and he was pleased with her. Those of us who believe in Jesus, those of us who are saved by His blood, I think we would say that Jesus is the thing that we treasure above all else. We would say that Jesus is the thing that we value. We would say it with our lips. And if we would say it with our lips, do we say it with how we spend our treasure? Do we say it with how we spend our money? Do we say... Jesus, you are the thing that I value above all else with how we spend our money. Do we say it with how we save our money? Do we say it with the way that we might store up treasures and pleasures and enjoyment for ourselves? The woman in this text knew. She knew that this expensive perfume, she knew that it wouldn't last. She knew that it wouldn't last. She knew that one day it would either be used up or that it would burn with the rest of everything in this world. She knew. And that's not a call to waste the blessings that God has given us. It's not a call to waste the things that God has blessed us with. It's a call to return those blessings to Him. It's a call to use our treasure, to use the things that God has given us for His sake, for His kingdom, for His purpose. Is that how you spend your treasure? Is that how you live your life? I love the last verse of this passage. I love the last verse of this story. Jesus declares in verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. What she has done will be told in memory of her. Now I love this for a couple of reasons. One being that Jesus who is sovereign over all things, who is is himself the word of life, he knows that this very thing that's happening in this time is going to be recorded for us. It's magnificent. 
He knows that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the word is preached, and therefore wherever the Bible goes, he knows that the story of this woman's sacrifice and the story of this woman's humility is going to be told. And, and effectively, Jesus at this moment is etching her story into all of eternity. Why? Because she has given herself to eternal things. He's etching her story into all of eternity because she has given herself to the thing that is eternal. And Jesus declares that this woman will be forever remembered for this selfless act of worship. I love that. How will you be remembered? Consider this. As you consider what you value, as you consider what you do with your treasure, perhaps your money or your time or whatever, how will you be remembered? When you pass from this life, how will people remember you? How will they remember your life? What will people say about the things that you treasure? What will people say about what you valued? What will people say about how you spent your treasure? Will they say about you, He truly gave all He had to the Lord? Or will they say, He sure did love His hobbies? Will they say, all that she had was the Lord's. All that she had was His. Or will they say, she sure did love to go on expensive vacations. Most of you don't know this, uh, but I have a pretty large baseball card collection. I know, I'm nerding out up here behind the, behind the pulpit. And, and most of what I have now is just stored away in boxes. It just sits in boxes. And I, I can say to you with humility and perhaps with a, a touch of shame that I, I wish that I had never started collecting baseball cards. I wish that I'd never purchased a single one. Story for a different day. When I grow old, when I pass from this life, I hope that my children and my grandchildren and my friends and my church and those who know me dearest and most closely, I hope that they say about me, Grant loved the Lord. All that he had belonged to the Lord. Many days, my fear has been that people will look back on my life and they will say something like, Grant sure did love his baseball card collection. If that ever happens, if that is what becomes of me, then I have to say to you that my life will have been a waste. If that happens to me, then my life will have been poured out for the sake of myself, and for temporary things and not for the sake of eternal things, not for the sake of Christ. Now when we think about how we want people to remember us, that might seem vain to us. When we think, well, I really want people to remember me for this or, or this or that. 
I believe there's wisdom in considering how we want people to remember us. I think there's wisdom in that consideration. I think it helps us fix what might be broken in our lives today. I think it helps us to properly self-reflect on how we're living now. And I say that I believe there's wisdom there because I think we find it from the Scriptures. King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22, which we read this morning, that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Favor better than silver or gold. And he writes again in Ecclesiastes that a good name is better than precious ointment or precious perfume. The day of death better than the day of birth. When we die, all that's going to be left of us is our souls and the memories that people have of who we were and how we lived. All that will be re- remain of us will be our souls and the legacies of the way that we lived our lives and what we did with our treasure. Everything else is going to return to ashes and dust. This is heavy stuff, folks. We've had a few minutes to consider ourselves, a few minutes to to think about what we value, to think about what we treasure, think about the way we spend our money, perhaps our time, and think about how we'll be remembered in light of all those things. You might look to yourself today. You might find yourself gripped with the reality that you're investing your life, that you are investing your treasure in things that don't glorify Christ. You might look to yourself today and you might recognize that what I'm doing with my time and my talent and my treasure does not glorify Christ at all. You may find, as you think through these things, you may find that in light of this, you may find that you look to your heart and you don't love Christ. Now, I'm not saying this to those of you who know Christ in your hearts. I'm saying you may realize to yourself today, if you're here and you don't know Christ, that you don't love Him. You don't know Him. And maybe you already knew that before today. Maybe you already knew that before hearing me talk about treasures. If this is you, if you recognize in your heart, if you know that you do not love Jesus Christ, if you recognize that He is not your treasure, the thing that you behold, if He has not saved you, then you need to know that you are destined for the same eternity as the chief priests the same eternity as the scribes, the same eternity as Judas Iscariot, the same eternity as those who betrayed Jesus. If you do not love Jesus, then you are destined for hell. Your sin separates you completely from God. As the Scriptures tell us, there's not one that's righteous, not one. But Jesus, who was sovereign over even His own death, Jesus has the power to forgive you of rebellion. Jesus has the power to forgive you of your sin. If you don't know and love Jesus, then my plea to you would be to repent, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from earthly treasures, and to turn to Jesus, to cry out to Him and to ask for forgiveness, to ask Jesus to take your eyes off the things of this world and to fix those eyes onto Him. This is real. If your heart 
belongs to the world, then it's going to perish with the world. If you turn away from your sin, if you turn to Christ, then what Jesus will do is He will cast your cares and your worries away from the things of this world and you won't even care if your most expensive perfume, if your most valuable treasure is cast at His feet. I think for most of us, perhaps, you know that you love Jesus Christ. You know in your heart that you you love Him. You know in your heart that you treasure Him and you want to honor Him. I want to give you all one practical way that you can pour out your treasures upon Jesus. I know that talking about what we do with our money and treasure and time and what we value, this is hard. It's hard to consider these things. It's convicting. So I want to give you a practical application of how you can honor Christ with your treasure, that you can show Jesus that what you value above all else is Him. And it's simply this. If you want to value Christ above all else, if you want to be remembered for how you used what God gave you, then it's simply to give to His church. To give to His church. There's a couple of ways that we can give to Jesus' church. But before we talk about those ways, we need to understand that Christ and His church are undeniably linked. When we talk about giving to Jesus' church, we are talking about giving to Christ. Why do I say that? Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul said this, Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her. And what He said for this is that the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman was really just a symbol of Christ and His church becoming one. A symbol of Christ and His church being joined together. Paul goes into much greater detail there, but what he says is that if we love Jesus, then we love His church. And another way to look at that is that if we despise His church, if we disrespect His church in any way, then truly what we're doing is we're despising Jesus. We're disrespecting Jesus. These two things are inseparable. Christ and His church. Let's get a little more uncomfortable. The first way that you can give to Christ's church is simply to give money to Christ's church. Now, I get to say this standing in front of you, um, with, with really no fear of shame or self-concern uh, because I don't receive anything from this church. You all, what, what you all perhaps give does not pay me at all. I labored as the lead pastor of this church for 18 months and thanks to the Lord's good grace, I was able to work a full-time job and to be paid well and didn't have to take money from the church. And to further that, guys, let me be really, really honest with you. For those of you who give, I have no idea how much you give. I have no idea. I don't know and I don't want to know. I have no idea. Besides myself, I have no idea how much any person in this church gives. I have no idea if you give or don't give. I don't know. So what I say about money comes with zero strings attached. So if you feel any 
if you don't like hearing about this or if you feel any condemnation, just relax, okay? This, this is one church member speaking to other church members, okay? Here's what I do know. I do know that both as an elder, I know from the perspective of the, of, as an elder of this church, and I know from the perspective as a member of this church, how much we all benefit from the labors of those who serve this church. How much we benefit from those who give their lives to this church. Guys, we benefit from Sean's labor. If you're a member of this church, then you benefit from the countless hours that he spends every week loving you, loving me. We benefit. And you all benefit from my labor. You all benefit from Michael's labor as elders in this church. But Michael and I are able to serve for free so that Sean can give all of himself to this church. All of his time. So I want you to take a moment to consider how you might benefit from the labors of the elders of this church. And if you're a member of this church, I have to say that you do benefit. You are benefiting. And if you are, then my plea from one church member to another is to give. Give in exchange for the benefit that you already receive. We pay rent so that our families can have a place to live, stay covered. We pay for our utilities, for electricity, so we can stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter. We pay for cell phones. We pay for cable television and internet. We pay for a, a host of things. We give our money to a host of things. And I want to tell you all that the work that Sean and the elders do in this church is worth more to your life is worth more to your eternity than any of those other things combined. If you are a member of this church, if I haven't said it clearly, you are benefiting from the labors of those who serve. Those of us who have come into membership in this church have, have signed a church covenant. Those, uh, those of us who have come into membership over the last year have seen this document, have have signed a commitment to this church, have signed a commitment to the gospel, a commitment to live a holy life that promotes the gospel in any way possible, a host of other things. We've committed ourselves to this. I just want to share a couple of statements from our church covenant. Here's one. It says that we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, its ordinances, its discipline, and its doctrines. And another, it says this, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. When we give, we are, we are fulfilling our commitment to support our pastor. We're fulfilling our commitment to support the ministries of this church. Many of you probably know that a good portion of our expenses at this time are not paid for within this church. A good portion of our expenses, in fact, are paid for by people outside this church. Friends and acquaintances of people in this church who are faithful members in other churches. And we ourselves are, are supported by other whole churches 
in North Alabama and actually in other places in the world. In fact, it's, it's already been mentioned once, Sean's not here this morning because he's visiting a church that supports us, visiting a church that, that really doesn't, doesn't know us, doesn't know personally exactly the things that are going on in the, in the life, week to week, month to month, year to year of this church, but they know that the leaders of this church are faithful and they love Jesus' church and they want to support Jesus' church. We have to recognize that this is a short-term solution to what's got to be a short-term problem. (laughs) If you value Christ, and if you are truly able, let me give that qualification, if you are truly able, and, and God knows our hearts in this, if you are able, my plea is one member to another, give to Jesus' church. Another way that we can value Christ above all else is simply to serve his church. The Apostle Paul told the Roman churches that true worship was to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He said that this is your true spiritual act of worship. One of the best ways that we can demonstrate Jesus' value in our lives is to give ourselves over to the service of his church. Why? Because he gave himself for us. We all benefit from those who serve this church and who serve it well. We benefit. If you're a member here, if you have children, if you ever plan to have children, or if you had children and they're grown now, If you have children or or plan to have children, then your children, I can say, I think with confidence, your children have been and are being and will be loved. And our aim is to love them well, to care for them. So I would ask you that if you're able, if you're able, then be glad to serve the children in this church, the precious children in this church. Be glad to serve them by giving your time to the ministries of the children in this church. Be glad to do this. When you do this, you're not just serving the children. You're serving your fellow members, the parents of those children. Be glad to serve the children in this church. When you show up on Sunday morning and the grass outside is freshly cut, it's cut because Eric, who probably worked a a six-day week beforehand came and cut the grass of the church. Offer to help Eric cut the grass. If you show up here on Wednesday, Wednesday night, or if you show up on Sunday morning and the facility is clean, it's clean because Amber DeMars has made sure that it's clean. It's here, it's clean because she has ensured that it would be prepared. She can't do it all. (laughs) big building. Offer to help her keep the building clean. These are just, guys, these are just some ways that we can come together and to serve the church and to serve one another, to serve the bride of Christ. There are so many other ways. There are so many big ways and so many small ways that we have served the church and that we can serve the church. 
if you value Christ, if you treasure Him, if He is the thing that is of most value to you, and if you're able, and God knows our hearts in this, if you're able, then serve His church. Guys, kingdom work is in its very nature illogical to human reason. The world looks at what we do as a church and does not and cannot and will not understand it. And the reason for that is because kingdom work is often that which we can't see. Kingdom work is often that which we, we can't see. There may be times when giving money to Jesus' church, when serving His church, it might seem fruitless to us. It might seem pointless to us. And I'll say that there are ministries, there are churches who do boast in what can be seen. There are places who may masquerade around what can be seen and say that that is kingdom work. But I say to you that kingdom work is often that which cannot be seen. It is our aim, it is our desire as members of this church, as Christians, to be faithful, to build Christ's true church by pouring ourselves out for Him. By pouring ourselves out for Him. Because of what He's done for us. By giving our treasures to Him so that His church might stand strong. And so that one day, generation after generation after generation will look back upon the members of this church and and will look back upon the Christians who sit in this place today and say, not, those people really love the things of the world. But that they'll look back and say, those people, they poured out what they could. They gave what they could. They did a beautiful thing for the sake of Christ. They lived in a beautiful way for Christ. And so that they'll look back and say of us that all that we had belonged to Jesus. Please pray with me. Lord, what may at first seem like a harmless text. I think because we so often like to put ourselves in the position of the woman who pours herself out for Christ. We fail to consider, Lord, how we might be those who scorn and those who mock. We fail to see how Lord, in the way that we live our lives, we may be those who scorn Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning, we pray together that this text and that the preaching of this text would cause us to evaluate ourselves, will cause us to evaluate who we are, and cause us to evaluate what we do with the things that you have blessed us with. And that, Lord, we would desire 
over and above all to cherish you and to honor you. That our main focus, our main desire above all things would be the glory of your name and the strengthening of your church. I pray, Lord, that as these things perhaps convict us and as we consider these things for ourselves, that you will comfort us as you are good to do. That you will comfort our hearts and that ultimately, Lord, you will cause us to turn and fix our eyes fully on you. We pray that, Lord. We pray all these things, the the preaching of this difficult text, and as it receives in our ears and our hearts, Lord, we pray all these things would be to the good of your kingdom and your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.